text for this morning's sermon is Psalm 80. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stalk that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's mid-December and we're truly in the Christmas season. You notice it in society all around us. Radio stations and stores are playing the Christmas carols. Shopping malls are getting busier by the day. And various Christmas functions are being held. The focus of our society is on the glitter and the glamour of lights and parties and presents. Our society tries to sell the message that tis the season to be jolly. Yet for some of us, this is not the most wonderful time of year. In many of our worlds, all is not calm. All is not bright. At Christmas time, we feel like we should be happy. Yet we're not. 
And the fact that we feel we should be only burdens us more. For many, Christmas is a time to celebrate with family and friends. Yet sometimes our loved ones live far away. For some, Christmas is a reminder of loved ones who are no longer with us on this earth. For some, it's a reminder of the brokenness that we face in what we're supposed to be, close relationships. Accidents, sickness, anxiety, and depression. They all leave their mark on our lives. And so the season is not a particularly joyful one for all of us. We're not alone in our struggles and sorrows. There are many times when God's people were confronted by great hardships. When they called on the Lord to save them, to restore them. Psalm 80 is a plaintive plea of God's people Israel. John Calvin called it a sorrowful prayer. God's people cry out, Restore us, O God. Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This psalm is an Advent prayer. A prayer for the coming Messiah to save his people, to restore them, to bless them once more. Presents a situation of great need. A need that could not be filled by human help. Asaph cries out to the shepherd of Israel to provide a true savior. He prays, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. He prays for God to send forth his right-hand man to save Israel, to provide true restoration for his people. Ultimately, God responded to this prayer by sending his son into this world. The angel told Joseph to give Mary's child the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. No doubt that is good news of great joy for all God's people. It's the good news we need to hear to put our life struggles and sorrows into perspective. And yet we are not done praying for the coming of the Christ. He has promised that he will return. And that when he does, he will make all things new. And so we look forward to Christ's second coming. But the hardships of this life are no more. But we will dwell with Christ in everlasting joy and glory. I preach you the gospel under the following theme. With Israel of old we pray, Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. We'll see our need for restoration and God's provision of his right-hand man. Psalm 80 is a prayer of Asaph. The psalmist begins by calling on the Lord. He says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Asaph confesses God to be the shepherd of Israel. It's an image of God's tender, loving care for his people. The psalmist extols God for his majesty and power. 
God is enthroned in the heavens, surrounded by cherubim, by powerful guardian angels. Psalmist calls on this mighty God to give ear and to shine forth. He's asking God to hear his prayer and to act on Israel's behalf. Psalm 80 is a lament of God's people Israel, an anguished cry to God. Israel's in deep despair. The psalm mentions Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, three of the northern tribes of Israel. It's likely this psalm was written in connection with the oppression God's people suffered at the hands of the Assyrians. We read this morning part of Isaiah 7. It details how Judah was being threatened by the armies of Syria and Israel. King Ahaz was worried they would come against Judah to destroy it. Isaiah warns him not to trust in the Assyrians, but instead to trust in the Lord. He tells Ahaz to ask any sign from the Lord to prove his faithfulness. But the king refuses. Instead, he enters into a military alliance with the king of Assyria. Although King Ahaz refused to ask for a sign, the Lord gives him one. He said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So Isaiah prophesies how a young woman would have a son and call his name Emmanuel. Before he grew up, God would fulfill his promise to destroy the nations of Israel and Syria. The Lord would bring the Assyrians against these nations that caused Ahaz such dread. Yet the very king to whom Ahaz turned for help, the king of Assyria, would, be, would in the end be the king who destroyed him. The Assyrians were brutal in their domination of the then-known world. They were a warrior society where fighting was part of life. They were the first to use iron to make weapons. Iron was stronger than bronze, and iron weapons could be mass-produced. It gave the Assyrians a distinct advantage over their enemies. The Assyrians developed the, the world's first professional army. They were among the first superpowers of the ancient world. At times, they conducted terror campaigns as a psychological measure to frighten other peoples into submission. They would massacre people, burn towns down to the ground, even burn people alive on stakes. Often they would deport and relocate subjected people, robbing them of their identity and of their roots. Knowing this background is helpful for understanding our text. For it's likely that Psalm 80 was written in connection with the persecution that Israel suffered at the hands of the Assyrians. The raids started in 722 BC, and they lasted for about a decade. Slowly but surely, the nation of Israel was being swallowed up by this pagan nation. Their enemies came attacking their homes and farms. Their towns were being burnt down. 
Many of their relatives and friends had been raped and killed. God's people were in sore distress. And so we hear them cry out, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, shine forth. Stir up your might and come save us. Israel, please restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And yet, despite their desperate cries, it appears that the Lord did not come to help them. And so the psalmist cries, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? In verses 5 and 6, Israel complains that the Lord is the one who has brought all this suffering upon them. Verse 5, you have fed them the bread of tears. Can you imagine, beloved, that the shepherd of Israel has not brought his people into green pastures or led them beside quiet waters? He has not protected his flock as a good shepherd should. Instead, he's abandoned them. More than that, he's caused them severe suffering. In verse 6, the psalmist continues his complaint against the Lord. You make us an object of scorn for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. The surrounding nations scorn defenseless Israel, and they fight over the spoils. Their enemies laugh among themselves, and they mock God's covenant people. What has happened to the good shepherd who prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies? The shepherd had given them over to their enemies. In 722, Israel's capital city, they brought the whole nation foreign rule. Many of the people were deported. They went off into captivity. And beloved, what Israel experienced at the hands of the Assyrians, Judah would later experience at the hand of the Babylonians. Psalm 80 has been put at a very special place in the Psalter. It comes after Psalm 79, which bewails the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. We know that while the Psalms were originally written in different contexts, they were organized into five books. Thus, the editor saw Psalm 80, which was originally written in the context of Israel's devastation by the Assyrians, as a lament that also suited the circumstances of Judah when the Babylonians took them into captivity. This psalm has relevance whenever God's people experience suffering, when they struggle to make sense of God's ways in their lives. Do you know why Israel came under God's judgment at the hand of the Assyrians? Do you know why the Lord allowed the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem, to burn down the temple, to take God's people into exile in faraway lands? It was because God's people had forsaken the Lord. They worshipped the gods of the surrounding nations. They made alliances with foreign powers instead of trusting the Lord to protect and care for them. They also trampled God's commandments. Both Isaiah and Micah were prophets who lived in the 8th century B.C. 
Both repeatedly addressed God's people for their waywardness and for their stubborn persistence in doing what the Lord hated. Isaiah characterized God's people as a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. He said they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Israel was not only guilty of forsaking God. They also lived wicked lives, sinning in every possible way against their neighbor. God rebuked his people because their hands were full of blood. He exhorted them, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. He rails against murderers, thieves, and those who love bribes. The Israelites still offer the required sacrifices to the Lord. But God didn't delight in the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, and the peace offerings that they presented before him. The Lord said, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. God was not interested in Israel's attempts to appease him. They had broken the covenant relationship with him. Until their sins were confessed and repented of, God wanted nothing to do with his people's worship. The depth to which communion between God and his people was broken can be seen in the fact that God refuses to even hear his people's prayers. The Lord says in Isaiah 1.15, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. For God, our sins are more than just breaking a few arbitrary rules. When we sin, we rebel against God. We break communion with Him. If we, beloved, are going to live life our own way, why should God listen to us when we pray? God is not a vending machine where we put in our money and expect to receive His blessings. We cannot expect God to restore us and bless us and cause His face to shine on us if we're living in sinful rebellion against His commands. And thus the prophets called God's people to repentance. In Isaiah 1, 16 and 17, the Lord issues these commands saying, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, and learn to do good. Micah said, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Beloved, like God's people Israel, we too can face all kinds of struggles and sorrows in this life. There's times when we're confronted with illness and disease, with chronic pain, with limitations brought about by old age. We can struggle with our mental health and be afflicted with anxiety, doubt, depression, and suicidal thoughts. 
Christians too are involved in accidents and can be severely injured or even lose their lives. Financial pressures or difficult circumstances at work can cause us a great deal of stress. We face struggles in our relationships as husbands and wives, parents and children, brothers and sisters. Sometimes our struggles are the result of living in a fallen and broken world. With the fall into sin, God brought his curse on mankind and on creation. This life will be filled with hardships and difficulties, with pain and sorrow. Yet there's also times when our sins contribute to our suffering and our hardships. Financial pressures are often the result of poor choices we have made. Relationship breakdowns are rarely just the other person's fault. We've said and done things that contributed to it. Nobody chooses to get sick or to be in an accident. But you can deal with it in a positive or in a negative way. There's times when our troubles and sorrows are the result of our own sins. There's times when we contribute to our hardship by blaming God or by neglecting to turn to him in the midst of our sorrows. In a time when Israel and Judah were overrun by their enemies and taken into captivity, they had a poor me attitude. They asked, why has God forsaken us? Why doesn't he deliver us? Has God forgotten about us? The real problem was that they had forsaken the Lord. That they did not humble themselves and confess their sins. The refrain of Psalm 80, repeated in verses 3, 7, and 19 is, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. When Asaph prays, Restore us, O God, he literally prays, Turn us. Bring us back. Restoration cannot happen unless Israel turns to God in repentance. God has to make that happen. The psalmist pleads for God's mercy and grace. He prays for God to turn the hearts of his people away from sin. Turn our hearts to you, that we may be saved. We won't repent. We can't repent unless you let your face shine and you show us your favor. Beloved, if we want to get anything out of the Christmas season, we need to recognize that we're sinful people in desperate need of God's grace. We need to humble ourselves before God's throne, acknowledging our specific sins before God. How we often put ourselves first before God. How we fail to give God our first fruits because we'd rather spend our money on our own pleasures. The impatience, the frustration and anger that we so often direct to others around us our pride, our lust, 
our gossip and slander, breaking down and destroying relationships through the words that come out of our mouths, our covetous desires. Unless we repent, confess our sins, we cannot expect God to save us, to restore us, to cause his face to shine upon us. True fellowship with God requires humble and contrite hearts. Brings us to our second point, and we'll see how God answers our prayer for restoration with the provision of his right-hand man. After praying for God to turn them back to him in repentance, God's people go on to remind the Lord of who they are. They remind the Lord that they are his covenant people, his treasured possession. They do that by pointing to God's wondrous works done for them in the past. While they were once more suffering in exile in a foreign land, they remember how God had brought them out from Egypt, how he had settled them in the promised land. The psalmist does that by comparing Israel to a vine. In his prayer, he speaks to God saying, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. He speaks about how God established Israel in Canaan so its branches went out from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Euphrates River. Then Israel once more pleased with the Lord. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? God's people pray, turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine. They beseech the Lord to save them from their distress, to provide restoration and renewal once more. As part of this prayer for deliverance, Asaph pleads, But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Who is this man at God's right hand? The son of man whom God made strong. When God made a covenant with David, he promised to establish the throne of his sons forever. Israel and Judah's kings were supposed to be theocratic kings, kings who ruled under God, who led the people in his ways. Initially, the prayer for God's right-hand man was a prayer for Israel's king. But ultimately, Asaph was praying for Jesus, the great son of David. You see, beloved, Israel's kings never provided God's people with what they truly needed. Yes, individual kings like David and Solomon subdued Israel's enemies and provided peace in the land. They ruled for the most part as theocratic kings and led Israel in God's ways. And during their reign, Israel was blessed. Later in the history of God's people, there were some good kings like Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and Josiah who helped to turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord. But most of the kings were unfaithful and led Israel astray. That's why Israel and Judah both ended up in captivity. No earthly king ever truly served as God's right-hand man. The basic problem with Israel's kings is they were unable to deal 
with the root problem of all the unfaithfulness and misery faced by God's people. They were unable to deal with sin. We needed God's right-hand man, his son, to come into the world. In Psalm 80, Asaph prays that he would come to restore us, to turn our hearts back to the Lord in repentance. He prays that he might give us life, that he might cause God's face to shine upon us so that through him we might be saved. Earlier I made reference to Isaiah's prophecy about the sign that the Lord provided to King Ahaz to assure him the kings of Israel and Assyria would not invade his land. He spoke about how a virgin would conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Before this boy knew how to distinguish between right and wrong, the lands of Israel and Syria, who were threatening Judah, would lay desolate. That prophecy not only had a fulfillment in the days of Isaiah and King Ahaz, it had a further fulfillment in the birth of God's promised son, who would arise from the line of David. As Christmas approaches, we may rejoice in the fulfillment of the Emmanuel sign. Despite sending his people into exile because of their sins, God allowed them to return to Canaan, to be restored as a nation. God preserved his faithful remnant, and he brought about the birth of his son in a most miraculous way. With the birth of Jesus Christ, God himself came to dwell among his people. He did so for a specific purpose. It was to save his people from their sins. The Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the sign of Emmanuel. In him we have the assurance, God is indeed with us. Do you believe that, beloved? Do you believe that God is with you? In all the struggles and hardships of, the, of your life, do you have that comfort? In Romans 8, 32, Paul points to the fact that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And then he asks, will he not with him also graciously give us all things? In sending Emmanuel, God teaches us he is with us. He will help us. The basic question facing us is this. Do we believe that God is faithful to his promises? That he is with us in our lives? That he will indeed provide all our needs? Beloved, do you hold fast that promise? also in the midst of the deepest sorrows and struggles of life? Do you understand? Do you believe God is with you always? In Psalm 80, the psalmist compared Israel to a vine which the Lord brought out of Egypt and planted in Canaan. The Lord protected this tender vine and caused it to thrive. Yet ultimately it was ravished and destroyed. In John 15, Jesus said to his followers, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser, literally the farmer. 
And then he proclaimed God's answer to Asaph's prayer in Psalm 80. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's how we, as God's vine, can live and flourish. We need to recognize Jesus as God's right-hand man. As the one who came to restore us to fellowship with God by dying on the cross for our sins. As the one who ascended into heaven to sit on the throne at God's right hand. You see, beloved, we need Jesus to be our king. We need to hear and to believe and to live by what Jesus says. We need to abide in him. Part of that is turning away from our sins and repenting from that. Part of that is by living in obedience to his commands, by the power of the Spirit. Christ must live in us and we in him. Only then will God make his face shine upon us and be gracious to us. Only then will we be able to live under his blessing. Beloved, as you go through this Christmas season, you may be faced with struggles and with sorrows. Life may not be all peaches and cream. We live in a sinful and a broken world. Sin has its effects in each of our lives. Yet the good news of great joy is that God sent his Son into this world, that whoever believes in him will be saved. You don't need to be anxious or fearful or depressed. Abide in Christ and he will abide in you. That gives true joy and lasting peace. And know that Christ is coming again on the clouds of heaven. That gives glorious hope for the future. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad. Find comfort in him alone. Amen.